Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. The title of my message today is Giving Up Your Stuff to Gain What You Can't Lose. Again, giving up your stuff to gain what you can't lose. Now, for those of us who have a heart for evangelism, we would consider this event between Jesus and the rich young ruler a slam dunk. If there was someone who was ripe for salvation, it was this man. He came to the right place, to the right person, eager and asking the right question. We probably would just say, you know, with an arm over his shoulder, repeat after me, brother, and lead him in the sinner's prayer. Not Jesus. What Jesus did would be seen as an epic fail for evangelism 101. Here, he has a man on the brink of salvation, and what he says saddens him. The man literally turns around, exposed, and walks away. So my aim today is to show us that the way to eternal life is costly. Now, when I, when I was a child, if my parents told me something once, that was enough to get my attention. That was enough for me to listen and obey. Of course, they had their own way of ensuring obedience, but that's for another conversation. Why do I mention this? This story of the rich ruler is recorded in all three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all moved by the Holy Spirit to record the history of this rich man. This fact should be noticed. It shows us that there are lessons before us which demand special attention. So, we're going to have a close look at the interaction of this man with Jesus and see what we can learn. Let's look at the description of the man, firstly. The man was blessed. Verse 18 and 23, I'm going to read. And a ruler, and a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And um, just jump down to verse 23. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. So we see he was a ruler, and not only a ruler, he was, as we would say, filthy rich. Now, the only way you could be a ruler in a synagogue was if you were impressive. That is, spiritually, morally, and religiously impressive. In many cases, this position was connected to your wealth. You see, there was a belief that the more money you gave, the more blessing you purchased from God. So being rich and being blessed by God were sort of synonymous. So the man 
was seen as moral, spiritual, religious, blessed by God. Being blessed by God explained his wealth. He had achieved prestige. He had achieved prominence and power, authority and respect. Elevated to be ruler in the synagogue in a very legalistic society, which would only put a person in that position who in the eyes of everybody had attained a higher level of spirituality than they did. So we're looking at a description of the ruler and we see that um, he was blessed. But not only was he blessed, he was busy. What was he busy with? Well, he was busy keeping and he was busy seeking. What was he busy with? He was busy keeping the commandments. Verse 20 and 21 says, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, to which he replied. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up to now. You see, there's no doubt that this man had lived a respectable life. His life was filled with doing good deeds and living uprightly. Yes, he was busy living an upright life, but it was a life that was upright before men. So we see that the man was busy keeping the commandments. What else was he busy with? He was busy seeking. Verse 18 says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now talk about a question of eternal proportions. This rich ruler was seeking that one good act that would help him attain eternal life. He was trusting in himself. Something we should never do. Now as crazy as that might sound, let's cut him some slack. After all, he had good intentions and some admirable qualities. Would you agree with me that he was burdened? Would you? Yes. He was obviously dissatisfied and serious about finding out how to inherit eternal life. In Mark's account, it says he ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. He's eager and he had a sense of urgency about him. Now, the fact that he knelt before Jesus also depicts a degree of humility. Unlike Nicodemus, it appears he came to Jesus at daytime. Jamaicans, like me, would say, in the broad daylight. Publicly and without embarrassment, he wasn't worried about his reputation. Now consider the context. Jesus is seen as a poor peasant prophet, and this man is rich and a ruler, yet he was willing to bow down in spite of his position, in spite of his possessions, his power, and his prestige. He recognized he had a need for eternal life, something was missing. In the eyes of the world, he had it all. 
but in God's eyes, he had nothing of eternal value. Now, isn't he like so many in Canada, probably even in this congregation today, who are relatively wealthy? The tragedy is the lost world thinks that life is good because they have things. But the truth is their life is tragically empty. They know they are not alive to God, but couldn't care less. The rich ruler, however, was willing to acknowledge that he was made for something more than chasing after the wind. How about us? Are we willing to acknowledge that we are made for more than what this world offers? Are we? So what else do we know about this man? Now, he was motivated, wasn't he? He was ready to go for it. He was ready to do what it takes. He was pumped up. He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In one way, it appeared as if this man, you know, was partially there. He had it figured out. At least he knew there was something that he had to do. Little did he know that he was wrong. So this man was a member of the I Can Do It Club, the Believe in Yourself Club. He believed in himself. There are a few lessons um, for us here. You can have wealth, health, success, and even a place of authority and still find yourself empty on the inside. This man lacked fulfillment and he went asking for help. You know what? He came to the right place and to the right person. What do we do when we are dissatisfied with life? What do we do? The next thing we learn is that good intentions don't get you eternal life. That's the next thing we learn. Putting it nicely, the ruler had some misunderstandings. He was wrong about how eternal life could be gained and he was overconfident in his own power to accomplish the task. Let me repeat that. He was wrong about how eternal life could be gained and he was overconfident in his own power to accomplish the task. So we have taken some time and we have looked at the description of the ruler and found that he was blessed. Not only that he was blessed, he was busy. Now let us see the difficulty he was faced with. Now this man was faced with a massive problem. He grew up believing that keeping the commandments would get him eternal life. And yet he still had a void. There was something missing. Something needed to happen. He supposedly had it all. But yet still, here he was faced with a predicament. He was confused on at least two fronts. First, he was confused about the Savior. Verse 18 and 19. I'm going to read. And a ruler asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus was not saying that he, Jesus, was not good. He was instead inviting the guy to reflect on the meaning of what he just said. If Jesus was good, 
And if only God was good, as taught by the rabbis at that time, then the ruler was saying something about the deity of Jesus. In short, referring to Jesus as good teacher was at best a polite compliment. Here, we have a sincere, moral man who was trying his best by his way and in his own strength to please God. He was good by cultural standards, but he was as good as lost. Don't you encounter people like this all the time? Decent people? Often they have been raised in the church from good families. Their parents have taught them right from wrong. They hold responsible jobs. They pay their taxes, obey the law, are faithful to their marriages, attend church, and give to the church. They're good people, the kind that you would want for neighbors. They have knelt at the altar of their own goodness without realizing that they have totally missed the mark. But until you see Jesus as the Messiah and accept him as your savior, you are still outside of the family of God. When we see Jesus as our savior, we go from being good to resting in his goodness. We go from being sinners to saints. We become children of God. That's how we gain eternal life. So not only was this man confused about the Savior, he was confused about salvation. Let me read verse 19 to 21. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, wasn't he deluded? Consider this. Adam and Eve had one, don't do that command. Some Jamaicans would say, one dege dege command. And they messed it up. He has 10 and believes he's doing a great job. Talk about self-confidence. Now, when Jesus tells this man to do the commandments, this is really an indictment on the whole system he was a part of. Here it is, he had been taught all his life to keep the commandments, keep the law, keep the law. It was drilled in his head. In his mind, he has done so based on his response in verse 21. He says, all these I've kept from my youth. And guess what? He has the accolades to prove it. He has the respect of society. After all, he's a ruler. This young man was counting on all the good he had done to earn him a place in heaven. What he failed to realize is salvation isn't something we do. Now, should he have known the Old Testament well enough to know Genesis 15 verse 6 that says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Should he have understood the sacrificial system? That whenever there was a sacrifice, it was a symbol of substitutionary death that the violation of the law required. Either he dies or an innocent substitute dies in his place. It was all in the Old Testament. But by the time we get to the life of Jesus, there is a belief that one gets to God 
by being good. One gets to Jesus by sweating out the commandments. Brethren, it is impossible for us to work our way to heaven. Salvation is obtained through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the Philippian jailer said to Paul? He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Many are confused today regarding salvation. Simple faith is all that is required, and it is the only way. The only way. So we are looking at the ruler's difficulty and how he was confused. Let us now look at his difficulty with how he was confronted by Jesus. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and contribute, or distribute rather, to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, Jesus gives him a command to go sell and distribute. Now, we hearing this, we might make um, two mistakes here. We may believe this applies to everyone. Jesus never made this a general command to all who would follow him. But especially to this one rich man whose riches were clearly an obstacle to his discipleship. Now, I believe there are many rich people who can do more good in the world by continuing to make money and using those resources to the glory of God and the good of others. The second mistake we might make here is to believe this applies to no one when there are clearly those for whom the best thing they could do for themselves is to radically forsake that materialism that is ruining them spiritually. Like working long hours, not because you need to, but because you can. Yet spending vertical time in the word, in prayer, and in Christian community. You see, this command to sell and distribute was necessary for this man. It was like a divine laser pointed directly at the cancer in the young man's heart. A heart in which Jesus could discern an idol that was keeping him from the eternal life he so desired. Like they say, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Um, so I'm going to kind of um, give you an idea of some idols that I have discovered in my life. Because we all have them. So um, a little about my story. And I'll try to make it as short as possible. You know, I led a relatively successful life by worldly standards before moving to Canada. I married the girl of my dreams was well-educated, a well-respected professional. I was comfortable. I was a, from a Christian family, and I thought I had the Midas touch. I arrived in Canada, ready to take on the corporate world. Found my first job, and three years later, I turned up ready for work when, drum roll, drum roll please, the words, your surplus to requirements, hit my lights out. 
And to add insult to injury, they called a taxi for me to get home safely. How sweet of them. <laughs> Depressed, feeling discarded, barely able to provide for family without a job for eight months. I shared this with Pastor Dennis. And I was telling him how I was feeling and that I was unable to provide for my family. He looked me dead in the eyes and said, Sean, your employer is not your provider. To this day, that's the best punch in the gut I have received. You see, my position, my job, my ability to provide for my family were idols. Yes, there were good things, yet there were things that I worshipped. Idols of my heart. What is your idol? What is it that would lead you to sin to obtain it or to sin if you lost it? Is it that relationship that you so desire? That job? That fancy car? That nice house? Whatever it is. If it's a uh, if it's keeping you from being discipled, if it's keeping you from eternal life, it's an idol. So the command to sell and distribute is in the imperative. Jesus was saying, do this now. Recall, it was a very young man who came asking what he should do. Jesus is saying, don't go home and think about it or pray or fast about it. Like Nike just do it. So Jesus finally tells him what he can do to inherit inter eternal life. Now, Jesus is not saying that the doing, which in this case is sell and distribute, would earn the young man eternal life. Jesus was in no way teaching salvation by philanthropy. But he was demanding that this man give him first place. And his willingness to do would be a reflection of a miraculously changed heart, the new heart every believer receives by grace through faith in Christ. So Jesus not only tells this man to sell and distribute, leaving him high and dry, he tells him to come and follow. Let's reread verse 22 again. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And here it is. Come, follow me. Jesus told him to stop chasing and start following. The man had lived a life that had brought success. I'm sure there were those who would have loved to have his position. He had lived life following power, following prestige, following possessions. His whole world revolved around the life that he had built for himself. Jesus said that he was to give it all up and follow him. Jesus wanted to be first. He wanted to be the priority in his life. Now, I don't know what you're chasing, but Jesus must be the priority. You'll never find a peace that you desire or a relationship with the Lord 
if you are unwilling to follow him. He is a jealous God and demands that we follow him. So we first described the ruler. We then looked at the difficulty he was facing. And lastly, we'll see the decision he made. Now, in order to kind of um, pull that out a bit, uh, I'm just going to quickly look on Matthew 19 and Mark. And I'll read. So Matthew 19, 22 says, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And in Mark 10, verse 22, it says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, first of all, his decision was a personal one. He came to Jesus alone. He faced Jesus alone. He decided alone, and he left alone. Nobody's to roll with to support him when he stood before Jesus, his quest was personal. Everyone will have to make this choice for themselves. To give up your stuff, to gain what you cannot lose. For clarity, your stuff are the things keeping you from eternal life. In fact, some of us will make that choice today. Now hear me on this. To not choose Christ means you have chosen someone or something that you believe is of greater value. There's no middle ground, no in-between. So I ask, what is it that is keeping you from coming to Christ? Those of us here today who are not believers. What is it that is keeping you from coming to Christ? What is it that is keeping you from giving your all to him? Those of us who have accepted him as Lord and Savior of our life. Is it really worth it? Is it really more valuable than the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of men? Mark 8, 36 and 37 says, For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul. So not only was his decision a personal one, it was an eternal one. As far as I know, the Bible is silent about this man after this encounter with the Lord. He walked away from Jesus, still holding on to his possessions, but lost in sin. It is very likely that he died without Christ. The life that once held so much promise would eventually come to an end. And all of the power, prestige, and riches would not matter. No doubt there was a time in his time when his health began to fail, leaving him no longer able to maintain his position in the synagogue. He may have had plenty of money later in life, even more than he had when he encountered Jesus. But it couldn't buy more years or purchase his redemption. As Bob Marley famously said to his eldest son before he died in 1981, money can't buy life. And I will add more importantly that money or whatever it is you are choosing over Christ 
will not bring you eternal life. So for those who know they don't have eternal life, why not choose Christ today? Jesus wants to save you, and he can do so today. As his word says in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Won't you forsake whatever it is that stands between you and Christ and come to him? Will you? Now, the man's refusal to obey Jesus' command revealed two things. It revealed that he was not blameless as far as the law was concerned because he was guilty of loving himself and his possessions more than his neighbors. And he lacked true faith, which involves a willingness to surrender all at Christ's bidding. Jesus saw straight through to the greed, to the materialism, to the worldliness, to the self-centeredness. What Jesus saw was a rich man with a bankrupt heart. With the skill of a surgeon, Jesus cuts to the real issue of, his, of this man's heart. One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. As I said before, Jesus was not saying he must buy his way to heaven. He was saying that his money, his idol, was getting in the way of him getting to heaven. This man's problem was that money and power had become his master, his God. So the rich man pictured a decreasing bank account, 100 million, 50 million, 1 million, zero. Then he looks at Christ. Then he pictures the empty bank account. Then he looks back at Christ. Which would it be? It was a moment of decision. Who would be his God? Money or the master? The decision was cast. And money and power won. This man turned on his heels, sad and grieved. Eager for eternity, but enchanted by prosperity. He was eager for eternity, but enchanted by prosperity. Sadly, this man, though sorrowful, did not have the godless sorrow described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, which says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So why did he leave sad? Because he could not have it both ways. His money was too much to give up. Jesus watched him as he faded into the horizon and turned to his disciples saying, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Yes, it is hard for the rich to be saved. Hard because they have more things to forsake. 
Hard because they are more tied to the world. Hard because they have to stand in line like everyone else and receive a handout, the free gift of salvation. You want to know further how hard? Look at verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Allow me to make something clear. Riches can be more than material. Riches can be more than material. The intellectually outstanding, those rich in moral or artistic achievement, can also consider themselves too big for the kingdom of God. But all is not lost for them. As verse 27 says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now let's circle back quickly and look at verse 23 to 26. In particular, verse 26. I'll read um, the four verses. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? When the disciples heard what was said in verse 26, they were astonished. In the Greek, the word for astonished, astonished rather, is ekplexo, which figuratively means to be knocked out of your senses. They were blown away. They were floored. Their very foundation was rocked to the core. Why was this so? You know, the Jews falsely believed that riches were a clear sign of God's blessing, so that all those who were rich would be saved. But if the rich are excluded from eternal life, then how could anyone possibly obtain eternal life? So if a rich man, like the rich young ruler, could not be saved, this would block even the disciples from being saved. Talk about an earthquake. But then what does Jesus say right after this? Verse 27, he says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, following the, 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 the um, ruler's refusal to forsake all, Peter says, look at me, Jesus. Look at me. We forsook all. Let me read verse 28 and 30. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And I love Brother Peter, always wanting to remind Jesus he's around. There are a few things that we can see from these um, verses. Because Jesus seems, first of all, to overlook Peter's self-congratulation. I think Jesus was saying, eyes off self, Peter. Look at what I have promised. In verse 29 and 30 again, no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents for the sake of the kingdom will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And that's a promise. Jesus said in summary, any sacrifice will be more than repaid. That seems to make any and every sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of God only a temporary one. 
the disciples left all. Maybe not much by our standards. Because, I mean, you know, we don't, we don't fish, right? But all to them. The disciples followed. They broke with the world. Which is the real test. Lastly, we see that earthly increase is promised. Heavenly blessings are assured. So, in closing, easy believism will not work. Sizing up your good deeds against other mere mortals will not meet the heavenly standard. Your measuring tape will not work. Not now, not ever. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The type of belief demons have can be compared to the intellectual assent made by those who believe in Jesus. In the fact that he exists or that he, has a, he was a good person. Many unbelievers say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus. Others say, I prayed a prayer and the preacher said I was saved. But such prayers and such belief do not necessarily signal a, say, a change of heart. The problem is a misunderstanding of the word believe. You see, with true salvation comes genuine repentance and real life change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. Do you want to be made new? Let me pray. Father, this message is for me as it is for those who have heard my voice. I pray that we will begin to see our life as a sum total of many little moments of significance. Those little moments of decision when we trade you for the rubbish heap of this world. Putting you in the recycle bin for use later on. Help all of us to know that while the world pushes us to be independent, that the Christian life is one of growing dependence. Growing dependence on you and the means of grace that you have provided. For those here who have been caught in the cycle of easy believism, of trusting in our own goodness, bring them to the end of themselves in your time, in your way. I pray they know that the, that the moments that pass as they listen to your word and this moment now as they hear my prayer is the sum of your kindness to them and that your kindness should lead them to repentance. Move those convicted today to speak to someone before leaving. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.